Good evening and welcome to The Dark Art, horror with a heartfelt appreciation from two lifelong fanatics. My name is Jake Conrad. And my name is Marin Mascaro. The Dark Art is a double bill, and on this episode we're kinks for a day, with two servings of high school horror from the ultimate scary storyteller, Stephen King. First up, we have cinema's most infamous property, Carrie, a story that's And on the other side of our king's coin, we have Christine, the story of a boy in his car, a 58 Plymouth Fury who's everything her model name would imply. As a disclaimer, we must warn you that the dark art contains in-depth discourse on the subject of horror films, and therefore may contain descriptions of situations deemed frightening, traumatic, and inappropriate for children. And as a secondary warning, addressing the major plot points of these movies doesn't come without major spoilers for the films discussed. So, as they say, enter if you dare. Alright, first we discuss Carrie. Withdrawn and sensitive teen Carrie White faces brutal taunting from classmates at school and abuse from her fanatically pious mother at home. When strange occurrences start happening around Carrie, she begins to suspect that she has supernatural powers. Invited to the prom by the empathetic Tommy Ross, Carrie tries to let her guard down, but things eventually take a dark and violent So, Carrie, I think we we talked about this at one time, but... um, both being big Stephen King fans, and I've, I believe I've read everything from Stephen King to date. Um, I think he wrote something about baseball that I didn't read. That might have been it. Um, and Carrie was, I think, number three for me of my third Stephen King book. And um, I want to say I was in the in the seventh grade and and so for me Carrie was a real eye-opener um, and I'm interested in, in, in your take for sure um, for me as a young boy uh, in seventh grade the, the, I was fascinated by this coming-of-age type story about Carrie. And, and as she was kind of discovering um, what becoming a woman and, and dealing with high school and, and all that was like, for me as a, a boy who was interested and, and had no you know way of really knowing that, um, it, it, it kind of was formative in some ways, but albeit, you know, Stephen King being however many years older he is than we are, it's still a little dated even for its time. Um, When did you read this? So I believe I was in sixth grade when I read Carrie. This was my first Stephen King book. And I remember it was was quite a jump to go from R.L. Stein to Stephen King. Uh, Prior to that, I was... I was uh, mostly into Goosebumps and also Fear Street. And while Fear Street definitely does have its shocking, violent moments, far more shocking than I think uh, I even realized as a child that young, 
Um, yeah, this was quite a jump. And at, at about that time in my life, that was a time when um, I was really hitting my awkward phase, so I was starting to kind of feel some of that bullying, um, people not being as nice to me as they had been when I was younger, because now I was starting to get acne, and my hair didn't look so cute. And people thought some of my clothes were kind of weird. And you know what? That was all absolutely true. But, you know, like, why were they mad at me? Because I was ugly. I, I didn't get it. So it was very cathartic for me to read Carrie because... Yeah, I I was feeling sorry for myself, but, oh, man, I, I didn't have it anywhere near what this girl had. Well, and, you know, you had a, a pretty great set of parents I where you could come home and and cry or scream or talk, you know, up to them and and they could kind of help set the record straight where I think the hardest thing that Stephen King did in with most of his young characters is he took away that person. Um, he really does, he does it with Christine as well. He, he puts uh, these kids in a place where they're going through the hardest time of their life and it's really the deck stacked against them like it is for, I think every teenager feels this way, but in the, these stories it's even made worse with um, with the parents being almost non-existent. And, um, you know, Stephen King, from what I understand, uh, had a, a single mom who was working all the time, expected a lot of him. Um, and you, you get the feeling in a lot of his books that the parents, like in the, the book It and the movie It, these kids are running around doing all sorts of things and none of the parents have any idea. And I think that was probably something real in his life that he he wrote about. And, and I think it's made worse in, in Carrie in the movie and in the book with a mother that not only is not, doesn't have any kind of, isn't someone Carrie can turn to, but has the added, um, this insanity, this religious insanity that makes it even worse. Yes, I mean, the, the mother is actually Carrie's first and most fearsome bully, and that's part of the story that really is upsetting, to me at least. I think that Carrie is a horror story that has endured because this is a horror story in every sense of the word. This movie starts ugly, it stays ugly, it doesn't let up. It's, it is a horror story through and through, the whole way through. And another thing about it is that the presentation of the, of the narrative feels very real. I know that, you know, there's a lot of debate out there as to, you know, the, the scientific possibility of telekinesis, which is, you know, carries power. But if you don't look at the supernatural element, you can't help but feel that this is a story that really could be happening anywhere. And that's part of what, you know, gets under your skin about it. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, he wrote Firestarter not 
um, not too many years after. And, you know, I've watched that movie quite a few times. I love Drew Barrymore. I, th it's a, I think it's a great movie. And, um, you know, he, he has these young women in in terrible situations and then they he's giving he gives them this power that allows them to have some control um which is interesting not um he he doesn't do that with with many of his male characters a lot of them have access to supernatural um opportunities but not a straight up power that you can crush somebody's head or heart or start them on fire I think uh, to me that was a nice thing one thing I wanted to ask or, or, or gauge how you felt it it feels in some ways that this movie didn't age well and I think that's has to do with maybe my own children being teenagers and seeing how things have changed so much in, in our culture with, I think kids still can be pretty nasty to each other, but I think a lot of that's done now through social media, through um, anonymous ways, um, where, you know, it isn't, in some ways it seems simpler back in Stephen's King Stephen King's time and, uh, you know, even part of our time where, you know, if somebody didn't like you, they'd come up and, I remember um, my first day at, at school in Wendover, um, bless his heart, Jimmy Doherty came up to me and for some reason I was wearing white pants, which is not a good idea your first day of school. Um, I don't know what kind of faux pas that is, but it's, it's just not right. I was wearing white pants and this like fluorescent blue shirt, and I got in line for tetherball. I'd never seen a tetherball set up. We didn't have that back in Idaho. I got in line, I was excited, and he came up and he's like, I don't like you. And he knocked me down and kicked dust and dirt all over my my white pants and I got a nosebleed because I get one ever since I was little I get one if somebody looks at me funny which doesn't really enhance my toughness I'll be honest but I remember thinking like I mean I'm like oh okay and it was really obvious what happened there to me I mean he didn't like me he knocked me down he kicked dirt on me and I think things still happen with our teenagers right now but especially in the opening scene of Carrie it feels like we are in some ways there's been an evolution without I don't have any teenage children at this time but I was a high school cheerleading coach after I left high school and there was um I could see things starting to evolve even then. After I left high school, a lot of the bullying switched over to uh, text message. Yeah. And I remember there was a girl on my squad who was getting a lot of mean messages from another girl. And I, you know, I, I was just thinking simply, I'm like, why did you give her your phone? Yeah. And she said, that's just what people do. Well, and I know it's not neither here nor there, but there there are some ways that the movie, it, it feels dated. It feels like you're looking into um, the photos from my parents' wedding and, and yearbook photos and things like that. And yet, 
the basic story is is still prevalent i think i think it, if you can push past the the shock value of the of the girls in the opening scene berating and and just completely abusing Carrie um, and 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 see it for what it is is that this is a high school experience this is a junior high experience and we've all felt that feeling of uh, that we have no power and we don't know what's going on we don't understand why us like how did how did I get chosen to be bullied by this and it's a terrible feeling I think I think the movie captured that part so well and so does the book um, and, and it takes away all the power from Carrie and it's not till you know a, a couple 15-20 minutes that you start to get a glimpse that she has something going on with this telekinesis I agree um, the visuals definitely take you back especially I, I think it's actually more pronounced with the boys than the girls because fashion with the girls has been highly cyclical since that time and there are some of those looks that are actually starting to come back again like the super short shorts that that are you know have the color block lining and I've seen a couple of girls on TikTok who have that beautiful like bouncy feathered hair some, some of those looks are starting to come back so it doesn't feel quite as dated visually on the girls side as it does on the boys side but I think you really nailed it said that what this story does so well is that it, it really gets at the heart of how bullying is perpetuated, how it makes people feel, the powerlessness of it. And I think another thing that I noticed about watching this as an adult that I never bothered to look at before is that this story does an excellent job of showing how violence tends to be. As I was watching this movie this time, I more attention to the character Chris, who is Carrie's main antagonist. And there is an equal number of violent acts perpetuated against Chris as there are against Carrie leading up to the prom. It's true. Chris yeah. gets slapped around a lot, even by one of the teachers at school, which, you know, obviously that doesn't apply. I think pretty much everything that that gym teacher did in, in an effort to help Carrie made things worse. I mean, there's no doubt that punishing an entire class um, and knowing that it it was coming vicariously through uh, by Carrie didn't help anything. I mean, there's this was not a helpful teacher in that way, but you're right. I, I mean, it, it's it was a little shocking because Travolta looks um, a lot like his character from Greece, and, you know, he was supposed to be tough in Greece, but he wasn't knocking around any of the girls. He wasn't knocking Sandy to the ground and beating the tar out of her. So, that was that is a little shocking. Um, <laughs> I didn't notice that, but that's great. He was also wearing, you know, like 
the plaid shirt. <laughs> I saw the plaid shirt. <laughs> oh. Oh, so, cable guy saw this. The uh, the violence that you're talking about that builds up. I think the other thing that builds throughout this movie is this sickening, sweet sense of hope that Carrie has felt probably for the first time in her life. This idea that, hey, somebody sees me, first of all, and I don't have to be that weird, you know, religious mom nut girl that nobody talks to and is doesn't have any idea what life really is like and what's going on and what's cool and what music is. I mean, it was it's so sad for her to start to have that hope because you know the way that this is going, it's going to come crashing down. And not as you don't know it if you've never read the book and, and never seen the movie exactly what's going to happen in the end, and, and it is shocking, but that hope is probably the hardest, the, the part of the movie that hurts the worst. I mean, when when she just becomes shattered, and that and that visual of her covered in blood with her eyes so white, and that shock is, is just when everything shatters. And and that scene, I mean, it's iconic for a reason. You, it isn't. If you just see it, you go, okay, a gal covered in blood. But the buildup of you, you love that she's finally happy. Got a little shred of happiness in spite of her terrible situation. And when that blood comes down, you just know that it's over. I mean, it's it's such a dead weight that hits your stomach. It. Like I, I know it's coming every time, and yet I still feel a little shocked every single time. Without fail, it's just so awful. I, I can't imagine what would tell somebody to do something like that. And I know I just mentioned how Chris herself is acting out because she's a victim of violence too. Yeah. She's obviously funneling her rage onto Carrie because Carrie's an easy target, and that's somebody that she has control. So, it's easy, but that's over the top. Even for somebody who's acting out, it's extreme. But, again, it's iconic because it's extreme. And speaking of extreme, yes, we talk about Hyper Lori's performance as Mrs. White. My goodness. Oh, she is, um, she sells it. I mean, she really you believe and you've I've I've met people you know um, street people that come up and, and just start going off and, and telling you thing you, you know they're they have that look in their eye that she captures so well of just straight up insanity and and you know in the book there's there's more um, that you you understand. Uh, there, there's more dialogue so you understand her psychosis better it doesn't make it more sane but in the movie she sells it just by her acting I mean the way that she her facial uh, expressions her she it, I think that she in in just the way she um, in her acting sells that role and makes it to where you, there, there's no safe harbor at all for Carrie anywhere. Um, there's not. And if we go back to the gym and I understand that that can be easy to do 
I mean, I, I feel like maybe even I was guilty of it in the previous um, story I told about my cheerleader who was being bullied via text message. Because you want to understand what it is about the person that's attracting this kind of behavior, and at the same time, that's not okay. So, you know, the fact that some, even the person who is trying to present herself as a safe harbor for Carrie is still not a safe place for her and is not somebody that she can put her trust in, it, it really establishes that dynamic that truly this girl has. And if we go back to her mother, it's, it's always been very sad for me that her home life was arguably worse than her life at school. Well, because she could disappear at school. She could, yes. she, they, they, the casting was so amazing. The, the, her makeup and, and her wardrobe. She she's almost like a ghost of a person throughout the show. And then as as it culminates in the night of the prom, she becomes a real person for just such a short time. Like she sees, she has happiness. She has color in her life. Um, and Sissy Spacek. I mean, uh, it, it's hard. It was hard for me to see her in anything else, even recently and not think of her as Carrie. I mean, that was such a an amazing role. And, and to, to look like... Um, the, and then the saddest part is, the, 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 to me, the horror that comes from the movie and the book is when she breaks after the pig blood is dumped on her and everybody starts laughing. Um, she cracks to the point that this power is used to kill tons of people and most of these people are innocent of maybe doing what everybody's done at some point which is laughing at something that they shouldn't laugh at or or saying something rude to somebody that they shouldn't say and definitely not worth a death penalty but that's where the horror comes in it's almost like giving a baby a flamethrower and and taking away their sucker they the you know she's not responsible at that point i mean her mind is practically gone and she just unleashes this power that she doesn't even understand on everybody and i don't even know that she has control i mean you can see that she's controlling the doors and starting the fires and things but as far as where she is mentally i, I don't think she's there anymore in a way that had to be just a crushing blow to her when you know tommy was fatally injured as a result of that prank yeah i've often thought about that in viewings of this movie over the years because had Carrie not reacted at all, this would have still been a tragedy. Oh, yeah. Because a boy died as a result of a prank on Ross. So there was a casualty on the ground before Carrie even snapped. And that would have been, if, you know, this would have still been a horror movie, just a different kind altogether. And of course, I guess it just goes to show one of the saddest messages of this movie, but what makes it such a great horror film is that no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> right. Tommy dies when he was so kind and sweet and was the perfect prom date and took Carrie to the prom. And then our sole survivor, 
at the end of the movie, by the way, still, I will argue with anyone, it's still the best jump scare. <laughs> yeah. Stephen King said that it was, it shocked him, completely startled him when he watched it. But we see that even though Sue survived prom night, she is the one who actually, perhaps, bears the brunt of Carrie's rage. She <laughs> is going to have to live with this the rest of her life it's true and you know she was trying to find uh, forgiveness for her part in in teasing Carrie in the beginning but I think that also speaks to how you know what we say to each other whether virtually or um, even even things um, that we don't think through and we say to people not knowing where they're at what the effect can actually be and and how it's so hard to take that back like you you can say you're sorry but you know that doesn't fix the eating disorder they had for two years or the the uh cutting they've started to do and so i I think it's a it has a really good message but it also i think both these movies talking about like coming of age in carrie's case for a for a girl and in arnold cunningham's um arnold is that right yeah arnold cunningham's case in christine for a boy and it and it happens in different ways and there's and there's different warnings but i think um I thought that was cool that we chose two movies that were bookends in that way. Um, a boy and a girl and, and what they're going through in this high school experience. I agree. It was, it was very interesting to see the way that there were both parallels and differences and how it really is different on each side of that coin. All I think right. that... Um, we talked a lot about iconic moments in Carrie, and also how it's dated. But I wouldn't be any sort of fashion-loving woman worth my salt if I didn't mention Carrie's progress. I gotta talk about it. Because you can still wear it today. That is truly a dress that has stood the test of time. I could go throw that on somewhere right now, and although maybe people would kind of side-eye me and say I was a little too old to wear that dress, I think they would still think it was a pretty cute dress. I think a girl could wear that to the prom this year, you know, COVID permitting, and she would still look beautiful. So I thought it was interesting that all the other girls were definitely wearing dresses of the time. Dresses that look like a prom dress, you know, a prom dress that my mom and her friends wore. But Carrie wore something that was a lot simpler and turned out to be, have a lot more longevity. Hmm. That's interesting. I think, um, you know, I've watched this show quite a few times, but this showing, I watched a Blu-ray copy of it, and one thing that stood out this time for me on Blu-ray was just how the colors that Brian De Palma uses at the end of the movie with the, uh, at the dance, um, obviously the, the blue and the, bl- and the red for the, with pig, the pig's blood. And it, it is such a, it, it's such a colorful movie. Um, the way he shot it, it feels real. It feels like you're there. And some of those memories, you know, how when you think back to certain dances or certain, um, 
times in your life, like the prom, and and when you, your memory of it is sometimes larger than life and more colorful. I think he did that on purpose for that reason, because um, to to kind of accentuate that feeling of being this special night, this amazing. Um, that's supposed to be like the as a kid you build up to hey prom is this big deal and I felt like he really captured that um, that the the color of it and I thought that I I didn't notice it before but I I really thought that was cool oh yeah I think I think this movie is great at invoking emotion and it's it's an incredibly well crafted film it's well deserving of all of its icon statuses of all the awards it won um and i feel like this is one of the movies where horror started to get some major respect in the actual hollywood awards community sissy spacek was nominated for best actress for her role piper laurie was nominated for best actress in a supporting role which is great and you know they both deserved it i mean when you think if an actress is accomplished as julianne moore tries to run at this role and can't even touch you, you know you were very well deserving of the Academy Award nomination. I think you're right. I think that that horror as a as a genre, you know it can be campy. They you can have if your B and C grade movies that are just there for what you know, horror is like any other genre. There's a spectrum within it, but to say that horror isn't um, can't be um, can't speak to like deeper truths or be done in a way with with style and with um, in a way that's well thought out with good acting. It's it's completely it's crazy to think that people still will think about horror and and think about the lowest common denominator and not The Shining and um, and and some of the you know Blair Witch Project. Some of these that have changed the way movies are made in every way. And I think this you're right to to have some incredible acting and cinematography in a movie like this that came out in 76 I mean this movie these kids were going through their teenage years but you know when I was two years old um, and and what's happened since then I think some of the movies that um, that I love the most that are coming out today horror movie wise like Midsummer, Hereditary they, they, they've just taken that and continued to evolve I will always argue that Florence Pugh deserved an Oscar nomination for Vincent. Yeah. Well, is there anything else on Carrie that you'd like to... I definitely don't think I could pull off that dress, but you probably can't. But you did pull off the prom crown, right? (laughs) I was prom king, now that you mention it. And, uh, I was prom queen, and I actually thought about Carrie when they were putting the crown on my head for a split second. I thought about it. Hmm. That's pretty fun that we both were. Of course, I think uh, I wasn't thinking about pig split at all on, on my prom, so that's funny that you thought of that. Well, my our prom had like a celestial theme and we actually had stars up on the ceiling 
That's great. I also fancied myself to be a loser, so I kind of really didn't understand why I was being a Still grateful. I'm still grateful to the people. I thought it was because I hung up 30,000 streamers, but I don't know. All right, well, let's, uh, let's move on to Christine, if that's all right. Sounds great. So let me read this. Yeah. Um, so Christine came out in 1983, and it's uh, the synopsis is an unpopular nerd, Arnie Cunningham, buys a 1958 Plymouth Fury named Christine. Arnie develops an unhealthy obsession with the car to the alarm of his best friend Dennis and his girlfriend Lee. Is it Lee? Thanks. After school bully Buddy Repperton and his friends deface Christine, it's then that Arnie learns that Christine's far from your average car. In fact, Christine's possessed and has the powers to restore and avenge, and she'll stop at nothing to claim Arnie as her own. So with Christine being uh, a guy and, and feeling the... Uh, desire to have a car um, I'm sure guys and girls feel that way but I know that for most people that first car means freedom even in a little town like Wendover that has one road to uh, to go cruising on having a car was pretty vital even in especially maybe because it, we had one road there and so for me to get a car I, I, I don't know anymore it seems like some of my kids friends they're not getting their license till they're like 16 17 they're not even doing driver's ed I mean for me the day after I turned 15 I went and got my permit because I, I lived in Nevada I was ready to drive in fact I'd been driving on uh, um, on my grandpa's farm in Idaho on uh, the truck around the farm ever since I was probably like 10 and so for me that call of, of jumping in a car and going and, and everything a car represents to a teenager I, I felt every bit of that so when they describe in, in the book and in the movie Arnie's draw to having something that can become his and and represent some a little bit of power and in his life I I totally connected to that. I connect to that as well. You're absolutely right. In our town, a lot of the things that I was involved in were extracurricular activities in high school, and I lived half a block away from high school. So my whole world pretty much was in you know this this two-block bubble. So, when I was able to provide I was really excited. And my parents graciously let me drive one of our fleet. They allowed me to drive our 
everybody was just excited that I had wheels, that I had some way to move, and plus that thing seated like nine, so I could get, you know, most of my pals on the basketball team to just pile on in the van with me, and we could all go have a good time together. It is. It's a sense of freedom, and it's kind of a sense of, you know, there's, there's kind of hard life in it even I would get on my and I would drive out past three mile and turn around, drive all the way back through, and then go out to the salt lots and I just place it all And I think that's a feeling that a lot of teenagers I know I do. And it sounds like you're describing much of the same thing. So even though my vehicle wasn't cool, um, it still was a huge deal for me. Especially at that point in my life. And you know, I of course bought some minor accessories to try to to try to fix it up and make it mine. Even though uh, my dad was still using it for work, he was not too excited about me putting a, a license plate frame on it that said "Princess," putting <laughs> a fuzzy uh, steering wheel cover on it that was pink. I was going to ask if you bejeweled anything, but <laughs> I did, and I had a disco ball on the antenna for people who bought their cars in this century. Antennas used to be on cars so you could get a radio signal. <laughs> yep. So, um, thinking about my first car, I, you know, Hyundai, the, the car company, had just come out. And um, they had put out, I think, some little hatchbacks and whatnot. And so, the year I turned 16, they came out with uh, a little four-cylinder car that looked a little bit sportier than than the average Hyundai hatchback uh, called the Scoop and it it was the one I had was red and it was new and it had a little spoiler on it but best of all it was stick shift so um, I when I drove it no matter what type of car it was having a stick shift made me feel like I was racing and uh and so i can totally remember cruising up and down the road and you know listening to tunes and of course it was cassette players and they you had to find it and people talk about how dangerous it is to use your cell phone but back then trying to find the right tape and get it to the right song just about killed me all the time so So Arnie is, is in some ways similar to Christine. He's socially awkward. He's not popular with the ladies. Um, he kind of doesn't know what he wants in life. His parents um, have him on a pretty short leash. It seems like he's done, he's been a pretty good kid for them and done well in school. Kind of done everything they've asked him to do, even though it hasn't helped his high school cred, street cred very much. And the turning points when he and his friend Dennis are driving by and he sees Christine, this old junker of a car, sitting abandoned basically in a field or, or whatnot with a for sale sign. And, um, you know, I think that Stephen King wrote this character to have a bunch of acne and, and blemishes and not be popular and, and what happens in the movie and in the book um, and it's pretty cool and I think they do a good job in the, in the movie 
that as he starts to restore Christine to her former beauty, he starts to to look better. And they did. They chose to do that in the movie with um, him actually starting to dress a little more like the 50s, like the era that the car um, was created in. And I thought that was a smart idea to, uh, to go that route with it. I was really impressed with how they were able to convey Christina's natural character. You know, she was never meant to be just a car. Clearly, she's not just a car. And they had, they had ways of making her feel so real. I always have loved the element of this movie where Christine used her radio to communicate with me. <laughs> she would, you know, she, somebody would approach her, and if it's Arnie, she's going to play a love song. If it's anyone else, she's going to play, you keep on knocking, but you can't come in. Or some other type of vaguely threatening song that, you know with that nice 50s beat. I always thought that was so cool, even when I was younger. I was like, wow, they're really showing us that this car is a character. This is a girl, and she has a personality. And it isn't even spoiled by Michael Bay ripping it off in the Transformers movies by letting Bumblebee communicate only through the radio. Nope, it's not spoiled at all. And I, I do like that it's that she is like a female presence in Arnie's life that is jealous, that's possessive. Um, I think that, that that's interesting. I thought it was really interesting too. I thought that um, Keith Gordon does such a wonderful job of selling this, quite frankly relationship with this car I, I uh, when I was looking at some uh, previous articles and interviews having to do with this movie he said that he decided he was going to treat the car like it was a real actual woman so you would get that vibe so that you would know in no uncertain terms that Arnie loved this car just like she loved him and it comes across. I thought he did an excellent job of selling that. And where, you know, uh, Carrie has her issues that come from her upbringing, um, Arnie's issues are, are, you know, can be seen in, in the high school experience as well when for young, for men or women that become obsessed with something, they become, you know, it starts small. And it starts with something that seems to be positive, whether it's a relationship um, or uh, or drinking or wh- whatever um, that might start out as an innocent thing and can then sometimes change who they are completely. In Arnie's case, the way he treated his parents, his friends, everybody around him from the beginning of the movie to towards the end is night and day. Um, and in the book, if I remember right, um, he wasn't really conscious, as conscious of the fact that Christine was murdering his high school bullies as he is in the movie. And I, and I think that 
he in the movie he's more conscious of it i think that he's powerless to stop it just like other addictions that hit you know and and when they hit in high school you're just so much more apt to get pulled in and and change who you are quickly so something that i thought as i was watching this movie because i think the film does a really great job of establishing early on that Christine is capable of killing. They do it right at the beginning. Christine kills two people on the back wheel. Well, not two. She doesn't kill two people. My mistake. She injures someone and kills another person while she's on the back wheel. Which that part isn't in the book, but I think it's it, it does set up what Christine is. I think that was well done for the movie. Because I think had they not done that, and also the choking scene with Lee... It would have been really difficult to discern whether Artie was involved with these murders or not. Because, you know, as as uh, you see when, when Christine is out on her rampages, all of the windows in the car are completely black. So you can't tell if there's even a stunt driver in there. Right. And I kept wondering to my... And, you know, I've always wondered. Like, is it possible that Artie was behind the wheel? I know he wasn't supposed to be, but he very easily could have been just by the visuals. Well, and I think that the the what I was talking about about this addiction um, in the case with Christine, whether he was or wasn't, towards the end doesn't even matter um, because he was kind of lost. He lost whoever he wanted to be. He, I mean, he had the intention of being cool, having a car, having a girlfriend, and and. He, even though he was able to attain those things, this addiction to something he didn't understand is what eventually got him. Um, but uh, one thing I wanted to talk about real quick is what a bitchin' soundtrack this movie has. This is one of the more fun soundtracks. I mean, it starts out, I believe, with Bad to the Bone to just set the scene. Um, I thought that was a blast. But if you look, like you're saying, the songs that they choose to have Christine play, whether they are telling a character to back off or be careful or whatever it might be i mean they're they're great songs from most of them from that era that christine would have been born in and and i think it brings a lot to the table as well as like i said as as christine starts to evolve and and become whole arnie starts to look like he's he's dressed from that era even though this is set in the 80s can't say enough good things about the soundtrack. Um, and also, not just the songs, the actual, you know, period songs that they use from the 50s, but also, once again, we, we seem to have stumbled back into John Carpenter, which I wasn't even really aware of until we, until we chose this movie. And his, you know, his contributions to the soundtrack, the eerie music, if you didn't know he had directed it, would from that. That's right. It was. It's really such a great calling card that he has that he's able to create that music. Well, it's not by accident. We're we're choosing 
John Carpenter movies, what we're doing are choosing some of our favorite horror movies, and they are John Carpenter movies. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much I love The Thing, um, the movie The Thing. I It's one that I watch pretty much once a year around Halloween. It, and again, uh, he just is an amazing director of horror. liked how this movie it kind of embraced the idea that this story, if you were to just look at it on paper, it might almost seem cool. Ooh, an evil car. You know, the family guy bit where um, they do a cutaway and Stephen King is in an editor's office. <laughs> he's looking around, he's like, my new story is about an evil um, lamp. Ooh, he looks at the editor and goes, when can I have it? <laughs> I'm pretty sure they were referencing Christina. And yet, sure. this movie, this story, it's so good. And I think that they keep, you know, they keep alive where it's supposed to be alive. Like a lot of the scenes with the boys in the high school, those scenes could have been crucified. Like if you had three random actors act out some of the scenes in the hallway from Christine and some of the scenes in the hallway from Superman, people who have that arms really roll with those movies right now time to scream. It's true. So, so they did. They keep light where it needs to be light. They go real dark where it needs to be dark. Like Gucci's murder. Oh yeah, when he was he the one that gets cut in half. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, and you know, where in Carrie, I, I, I didn't feel this righteous indignation when she was murdering the whole, <laughs> the whole auditorium. I mean, some of the people, yeah, you're, you're pretty happy about, but for the most part, you're going, oh boy, this is a mess. In this case, I mean, this is like, you know, your greatest dream. The people that mistreated you the most, you have, your lady friend car just out running them down and doesn't matter what ha what she does uh, how she wrecks into them she she heals and there's no DNA I guess this car's got it figured out I mean it's this righteous justice kind of thing that's pretty fun and and a total guy thing in some ways so there's no How well those effects come up. I actually had to go back and, and do some research on how they did some of those things because with airbags, wasn't it? Yeah, it was amazing with you know with models and hydraulics. And once again, going back to Bob's murder, where he finds he runs into a small alley thinking he's safe. Yeah. And then she smashes herself into that small space, just relentlessly coming after him until she cuts him in half. And I, and I thought to myself, oh my gosh, that looks amazing. I wonder how they did that. As it turns out, it's over. Well, I'm, I'm uh, a believer that practical effects are the way to go even today. I mean, if Christine was remade today, we both know it would look like, I mean, they would use the Transformers style um, CGI. And to me, there's a place for it. It works in some ways, but the, those practical effects, you can feel that car coming back together and you can feel it being damaged because it's real. They're not, it's not, 
a bunch of folks um, sitting in front of a computer for 40,000 hours making it happen. I mean, they, they bought many cars for this and they destroyed them all. I think there was like two cars left and I read that one of them sold for like 160 grand somewhere and just not too long ago. Seeing where Buddy and his gang smash up the scene is very tough to watch. It is. It, it's sad. <laughs> it is. It's sad. It, I had to look away. It reminded me of when I was a kid and Cinderella's stepsister ripped up her breast and I would cry every night. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same feeling. <laughs> and Buddy was just a... Uh, I don't know who that actor was, but he, he did it great. I mean, there's... He couldn't describe a better bully than Buddy in that movie. So, oh, he's I know. I loved it. So, yeah, I think um, one thing about the book that is, there's a lot of, there was, there was some criticism about the book, and kind of like what you said, um, what it's about a car that kills people. You know, when you haven't read it, it, it's easy to dismiss it. But one of the other things is there's a bit of a disjointed um, storytelling going on where um, at one point the story is, um, it, for the most part, is being told through Dennis, his friend. And then in the, in the movie and in the book, Dennis gets in an accident. And, and then the book changes the narration completely and so um, I think that the movie in some ways is better because although that happens it doesn't feel like they changed the voice of the book or the voice of the movie halfway through like the book did um, it's just there are a few things that like the beginning that I thought was kind of cool that they set the stage that Christine was always bad um, and Arnie just happened to get in the path of it, uh, where the book isn't quite as, as clear with something like that. So I, I really like the movie. I think that, you know, I'd, I'd heard that John Carpenter didn't want to do the movie at first and that they started the movie before the, the book had even, you know, come out practically, that they were already optioning it and some things about that. But in the end, I don't think any of that comes through the watching of it. I think the, the soundtrack, the acting, the special effects, and the story is just great. You would know. <laughs> you would absolutely know. I, I have always liked this movie. So it was a little bit hard when you told me that you wanted to to work on some Stephen King stuff because there's a period through some of the 80s, 90s that Stephen King movies were, it was either, a, it seemed like it was one hit for every two or three misses and it, it always broke my heart a little bit to have these darlings being killed because these books um, I mean I, I would read over and over all, all these books and so to see in the 90s some of this coming out in like a, a miniseries format like they did with the Tommyknockers and some of these books that I loved and I had this clear vision in my head of what 
the characters were like and what was going to happen to have some of those be flops basically and not live up or have just terrible special effects and and low production value I would kind of brace myself sometimes I wouldn't see them for years I mean there's some Stephen King miniseries things that I didn't watch until you know 10 years ago that had been out for forever and some of it is access but some of it was like I just couldn't bear it 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 hurt me a little bit so the fact that we chose um, we've chosen a couple of real solid movies um, that really do justice to Stephen King's awesome writing were it made me happy. I, I was almost hesitant to even want to do it. Um, but these, these movies are great examples of why he's definitely the king. I thought about that. And I and the reason that I, you know, push for Carrie is because Stephen King himself said that he thought the movie was better than his book in a nineteen eighty three Playboy interview. So I was like, Well, okay, the man himself said that this is a good movie. So we should go with this one. Well, I appreciated it, and I will watch him again, I'm sure. Is there anything else that you had on these movies? or? I had one more thing that I wanted to say. I thought it was really funny that we unintentionally chose one of John Travolta's first movies and also one of Kelly Preston's first movies. (laughs) That is interesting. Kelly Preston was in Christine. We didn't mention her, but she was one of the supporting characters as well. Hmm. That's cool. And that's a wrap for tonight's episode of The Dark Art. We hope you had as much fun as we did heading back to high school with Stephen King. We sincerely appreciate you letting us add a bit of darkness to your day. Until next time, friends.